with him, she kissed his hand, and Alexander, touched, asked her what she desired. Seizing the moment, like any good opportunist, and I have always admired an opportunist, being one myself, she whispered, to be a boarding student, and he said grandly, done. Just like that, she was given a bed, and with it a stature greater than the simple day student, over whom she could now lord herself. Yes, the family always attended the annual graduation at the school, and down its halls they made a parade far more thrilling than any royal processional we enacted on the stage. Down the broad corridor strode the emperor, taller than anyone, a trunk like a barrel, his forehead a stone wall and behind him the empress, tiny like me. Where is Kishasinska? he called. He knew my name because I was the youngest daughter of the great Felix Kishasinsky, who had been dancing for the Romanovs for almost forty years. That was how the Tsar knew my name, and as for why the Tsar liked me, called for me, perhaps because I was the theatrical expression of his consort, small, bright-eyed, dark hair set in waves. Yes, that must have been why. He saw how we were alike. I ruled my world with the same great vivacity she used to rule hers. And wasn't my world but a miniature of her own? Its rituals, its hierarchies, its costumes, an echo of the elaborate Romanov court? I lived my life in one world, but I planted my foot my slipper, in the other. That day, that day of my graduation performance, where I took the first prize, a heavy volume of the complete works of Lermontov, which I never read but planned to use as a flower press, and then never opened even for that. The emperor moved the girl who was to sit at his left at the school's modest supper table and put me in her chair, placed Nicholas at my left, and then said, don't flirt. By which, of course, the emperor meant the opposite. If the emperor was a giant, the Tsarevich was a fawn. Small, slightly built inside his uniform, his cheeks pretty and soft. I had seen him before that day, only from a distance, but now both he and I were almost adults. He would finish with his tutors and lessons that spring, and later that year he would hide the childish softness of his face with his new beard. But on this day his cheeks and chin were exposed, and it made him seem gentle. This gave me a courage that had he looked any more formidable I might not have had. I understood my talent had brought me into a new orbit— one with a path higher up into the heavens, and I was not afraid to fly there. At seventeen, I knew better how to flirt than Nicholas did at twenty-two, and I was prepared to do so as soon as he spoke to me first. I knew at least that much, to wait. Until then, I pinched at the little blue forget-me-not sewn to my dress to keep my fingers from pinching at him. And what did the Tsarevich finally say to me? He gazed at the plain white drinking glasses set at each place, rather than look at my face, which was, I am sure, radiant from the attention of his father and the proximity of the air. I was never a beauty, my two front teeth tilt inward, 
the dog teeth protrude. The Russian tabloids drew me that way in caricature. But I was eager, and I had those eyes, eyes like a fairy. Louis XV kept his mistresses in Parc de Serre. The gossips would later call me the fairy of Parc de Serre. So what did the Tsarevich say to the fairy while he looked down at the table? Don't laugh. This. I'm sure you don't use drinking glasses like these at home. That was the best he could manage. A few months later, he would join the hussars and begin to drink and carouse with his fellow guards, who prodded him out of his timidity. But this sneaky, slow and shy, made my work so much harder. Drinking glasses? What was I to say to that? Accustomed to the crystal of the minister service or the Petrograd service,